0: host, Dr. Christine Suvchuk, and today we are going to be talking about pediatric traumas uh, and the primary and secondary survey. Joining me, I have Dr. David Greenkey, who is a third-year pediatric emergency medicine fellow, soon-to-be pediatric emergency attending, and he is going to be helping us walk through this discussion and teaching us how to approach a pediatric trauma patient. Thank you, Dr. Greenke, for being here.
1: Thanks. It's great to be here again.
0: So who is this episode
1: for? Good question. So this is really for the learner in the trauma room. So whether that's a medical student or an intern, uh, you know, if you're a resident and you're a surgery resident or emergency medicine resident, you're going to probably undergo ATLS training. You probably know this. Um, But there are plenty of other people that might find themselves in a trauma situation, some of them who might be interested in going into the field of surgery or emergency medicine later on. Um, pediatric emergency medicine as a fellowship. And so this is a really good opportunity um, to get some experience. Mm
0: -hmm, Definitely. And ATLS, um, for those of you who don't know, is um,
1: advanced trauma life support. uh, Thank
0: you. Advanced trauma life support. Yeah. Which is something that we don't routinely get as pediatric residents.
1: Correct. And this podcast is not to uh, replace ATLS. Obviously, that's a separate certification. This is really just to give um, learners a uh, idea of what it's all about.
0: Okay. Yeah. Like a little sampler of how we would approach a pediatric trauma patient. Correct. Which mostly follows the ATLS model.
1: Yeah. It it follows the model. Okay. Yep.
0: And so I think that it's important as a pediatric resident or as a medical student to establish your role before you go into the trauma. Would you say that that's It's
1: really important, and that's important for anybody taking care of uh, any patient, really. Especially when you're in a team setting, you all want to have your roles defined. And so, for uh, the learner, you know, you you know, you can really um, be as aggressive as you want to um, in the role. And I think uh, there's definitely space for you to be that person doing the primary and secondary survey um, if you want to do that. Um, I think people would really appreciate that. Other things you can do is you can you can watch. That's okay. Um, and then uh, you could also be the person gathering information, gathering information from a parent who might be there. Um, maybe you might be shuttling information back and forth between people. So there's different roles that you can take, but you can certainly take the role of the person doing the surveys. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think that this is also useful for all kinds of trauma. So you don't necessarily have to be in a dedicated, high acuity pediatric emergency room. For this to apply to you
1: correct you know any patient you see with any type of trauma you should really go through this stuff in your head even if the patient looks fine it's good to just go through the algorithm because then you won't miss anything
0: so let's kind of set the stage let's say we're in a pediatric emergency room setting and they've called overhead and we know that ems is coming and they're bringing let's say like a five-year-old who was involved in a motor vehicle accident in and, you know, we're kind of assembling the team as the pediatric resident or as the medical student, you get with your attending or you get with your other team members and you decide that you're going to be the person who is doing the primary and the secondary survey. Mm-hmm. What are the things that are running through your mind before you walk in the room? Like what, what are the things that are really important?
1: I think the most important thing to think about is the primary survey. And that's why it's called the primary survey. And it's pretty simple. It's A, B, C, D, E. And so you're going to be wanting to think about what are the things that worry me that I'd have to intervene immediately to save this patient's life. That's what the primary survey is all about.
0: Okay. So your goal is to be thorough and to do it in a efficient manner.
1: Efficient and quickly.
0: Okay. So the first uh, component of the primary survey is A, which is airway. Mm-hmm. How do you assess a patient's airway?
1: So depending on the age of the patient, uh, you'll probably be assessing it differently. Um, if it's an older kid, you can ask the child, what's their name? Where are they? And if they answer you, you know the airway is intact. Uh, younger child, if they're crying, for example, you know the airway is intact. If you're concerned that the airway is not intact, you have to do something about it immediately. Whether it's positive pressure ventilation or intubating the patient, if, you're, if it's a really sick patient, um, but you m- make sure that you take care of the airway before moving on to anything else.
0: Airway before everything else. Yeah. And then the next thing you would do is move on to B, which is breathing.
1: Yep. And really, you're just looking to make sure the patient has equal chest rise and listening for breath sounds on both sides. So you're concerned about uh, a pneumothorax, primarily. You don't want to miss that. And that's something that we can easily intervene on quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's the primary thing in breathing.
0: Okay. And then circulation...
1: So circulation, um, you know, want to make sure the patient is not losing blood. So you listen to the heart. Is the heart beating, number one? Um, What are the heart sounds? And then does the patient have uh, peripheral pulses?
0: Okay. So it's a very quick, is the heart beating? Are there pulses? Are the pulses strong?
1: And then you'll want to also look at the heart rate and blood pressure as well. So if you have an inadequate blood pressure, you want to figure out why and Mm -hmm. what you're going to do about it.
0: Okay. So you would intervene on that at that
1: point. Mm -hmm.
0: Um, And then I think it's also good to mention that as the person who's doing the primary and secondary survey, you need to focus on being loud so that everyone else who's in the room, all of the other team members who are doing their respective roles, has a good idea of what you're seeing, what you're hearing, and they can kind of understand how that is going to play into potentially what your next moves are going to be.
1: Yeah. You're really the eyes of everybody in the room because you're there next to the patient. So what you're seeing, you need to call out and that way everybody's on the same page.
0: Okay. So you would say airway is intact.
1: Bilateral, Bilateral breath, sounds.
0: breath sounds.
1: Two plus pulses, two plus peripheral pulses bilaterally.
0: Mm-hmm. If you have
1: a blood pressure, you might call it out.
0: Okay. Patient is tachycardic, but they have adequate blood pressure. Correct. Moving on. Yep. And then we would go to D, which is disability. For me, this is the hardest one to remember because it's not super intuitive to me what disability means. Yeah. Uh, And basically what it means is mental status.
1: Yep. You're assessing the mental status of the patient. So, you know, some people use AVPU or, you know, GCS score. Uh, I think GCS score is probably the most universal um, thing and easiest thing to do. Um, and just note that um, the way you calculate a GCS score might, is slightly different based on age. We're not going to go through all of that now, but you're going to calculate a GCS score differently from an 18-year-old uh, compared to an infant.
0: Right. Because infants can't talk. They can't verbalize. Correct. So you can't do the traditional scale that you'd use in an adult or, or a teen. Correct. Yeah. I think that's definitely an important point. I also think it's an important point to know that your normal GCS for you or I or anyone is 15. Yep. Um, anyone who is in somewhat bad shape is maybe like a 13 and then anyone who needs to go immediately for acute intervention or who needs their airway addressed is less than eight.
1: Eight. Yeah. And so that's a good point. So obviously we're looking at the airway first, but sometimes, you know, we feel like the airway is patent and then we kind of keep going and then we get to the, uh, to the GCS and we figure out it's six. The GCS is six. We're concerned the patient is not or will not in the future, very soon future, protect their airway. And so you need to intubate the patient.
0: Mm-hmm. And that could change, right? But these are trauma patients. So yep. when you do A and then you move on B, C, and then you get to D, your airway status may have changed. So you would yep. always want to go back and address that airway is number one.
1: Correct. Always reassessing the patient. And the algorithm sort of allows you to do that. Okay. And then the other thing you're looking for in D is the pupils, you know, are they equal? You know, if they're not equal, is there something going on in the brain that you need to be concerned about? Um, You know, are they reactive, basically?
0: Okay. E is our next component, which stands for exposure. And basically, this involves doing a full exam on the patient and assessing for anything acute that you need to intervene on.
1: Yep. So you're looking head to toe at the patient really quickly You're exposing the patient, so making sure you see essentially all the skin, making sure there's nothing uh, crazy that you have to address. You know, there's no blood spurting out from the arms or the legs. There's no huge uh, wound in the abdomen, you know, those types of things. We're not concerned about a little abrasion or even a deformity in the arm or anything like that. We're really concerned about stuff that we need to address right now that could potentially be life-threatening.
0: The other thing that we sometimes do in exposure is we palpate the pelvis,
1: Yep. So palpate the pelvis, make sure the pelvis is stable because that's a place where you can lose a lot of blood quickly. Um, you always roll the patient. Um, so um, you know most of these patients are going to be in collars. Um, so you'll roll the, pa- roll the patient, you'll palpate their their spine up and down, make sure there's no tenderness, no step-offs, um, no concern for spinal injury. Uh, at that point, you'll also look at the back of the head, you'll look down the back, you'll look at the butt, Um, you'll look at the back of the legs and same thing, just, um, taking that opportunity to, uh, essentially make sure there's no injuries there. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, uh, in the primary survey, we'll often get a chest x-ray, a pelvis film. Um, and then sometimes we'll do a fast exam, uh, if we're concerned for intra-abdominal injury to see if there's free fluid in the abdomen.
0: Gotcha. So chest x-ray, again, we're looking for acute things we could intervene on.
1: Yep. Um, And then if we've intubated the patient, we're looking for tube placement as well. Um, Tube placement, pneumothoraces, um, uh, you know, heart size, things like that.
0: Okay. Um, Other things that could provide clues as to why this patient is a trauma. Yep. Uh, And then pelvis films, again, to look for pelvis fractures. Yeah. And then fast exam, just like you said, for for potential for abdominal fluid. Yep. Um, And if we're concerned about abdominal trauma or if we have... Um, a trauma patient who we don't really have a great story on, oftentimes we get labs.
1: Yeah, so often we'll get labs. Uh, trauma labs um, generally consist of getting a CBC. Uh, primarily you're looking for the hemoglobin to make sure it's not falling. Um, you get a CMP, um, probably the most important thing on that is the LFTs, which could be a sign of intra or liver injury. Um, you're gonna get a lipase that's gonna tell you about pancreatic injury. Uh, sometimes you're going to get a PT, PTT. Uh, if the, if you're concerned about the patient and you think they might need blood, you would get a type in screen or a type in cross. And, um, yeah, those are the main, the main labs. And then yeah, usually you get a urinalysis as well, looking for blood in the urine.
0: Okay. If there's blood in the urine, that might tell you that there was maybe some pelvic trauma trauma around the bladder. Mm-hmm. So you're mostly mm-hmm. looking for blood in the yeah. in the urinalysis.
1: Yeah, and then another quick thing about the fast is um, if you're doing an extended fast, you're gonna look at the cu- quickly at the heart, make sure there's no effusion, make sure the heart's beating appropriately. And then you'll look at the lungs and you're looking for lung sliding, which is a sign of normal uh, lung function. If there's a lack of lung, lung sliding on the ultrasound, you'd be concerned for nor- pneumothorax as well.
0: Okay, got it. So these are all things that you're kinda like, boom, 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 yeah. you're working through it. Is it gonna kill the patient? very soon and then addressing yeah. those things
1: that you find yep and all throughout the primary and secondary survey you want to be systematic but you want to be fast
0: mm-hmm. so ideally how long do you think it should take to get through a primary survey
1: primary survey if everything is okay should probably take under a minute
0: okay so this is very rapid fire yeah examining yeah okay and then concurrently as this is happening you are only one person and your role is to do the primary survey so your team members are doing things like establishing IV access. Yep. Um, ideally, we have great nurses uh, where at our institution, and they try for two large-bore IVs, yep. usually in either arm, but kind of depends on what the patient comes in with, what access they have, where their injuries are, yep. all of that other stuff. Yep. They're ordering the x-rays for you. They're documenting your exam for you. Yep. So you should not have your pen and paper out. This is not the time.
1: No. No, this is this should be a team effort and everyone's working together, hopefully pretty seamlessly.
0: Mm -hmm. And you're just really focusing on doing your primary survey and being loud and, and clear about what you're finding. Yep. Okay. so once the primary survey is complete and we kind of have our patient in a semi stable place where we've addressed the things that need immediate intervention, then then what?
1: So then we're going to move on to the secondary survey, which is essentially a head to toe exam with a a focus on pertinent positives and negatives for trauma patients. So we can just go through that real quickly. Okay. And this might not be exhaustive, but I'll try to hit most of the important points. Okay. So.
0: So you start right back up at the top.
1: Yep. Start at the top. Head to toe. Head to toe. Um, And remember, we've already hopefully taken a pretty good look at the back of the head and the back. Um, when we rolled the patient. So this is mostly focused on the front side of the patient. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going to look at the head. You're going to feel the head. You're going to feel for bogginess. You're going to feel for any step-offs. Um, look for any lacerations or abrasions. Same thing on the face. You're going to feel up and down the face, um, feeling for mid-face stability, any potential fractures. Um, you're going to look in the ears, looking for blood in the ears, hemotympanum. Um, you're going to look in the nose, uh, make sure there's no septal hematoma, uh, you're going to look in the mouth, make sure there's no injury to, no dental injuries that you're worried about, no injury to the oral pharynx. And look at the neck for any signs of trauma or crepitus. Kind of go down to the clavicles and shoulders. Mm-hmm. You're going to palpate for any uh, potential broken bones. Feel the chest wall, no crepitus there, hopefully. Uh, tenderness, uh, any wounds there, obviously. Hopefully, you've uh, noticed that earlier on. Move your way down to the abdomen, palpate it. Um, look at it, make sure there's no signs of injury, no seatbelt sign, uh, make sure it's nice and soft, not distended.
0: And when you say seatbelt sign, yep.
1: what, what does, does that, that look like? So you basically you'll have bruising in, uh, the, in the layout of where the seatbelt was in the abdomen, which can happen in a bad car accident. And that would be, if you do see bruising on the abdomen, you'd be concerned potentially for an injury inside the abdomen. You kind of raise your level of suspicion for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
0: So if you have a distended abdomen and a seatbelt sign, then your alarm bells are going off that there might be something going on in the abdomen.
1: Yep, exactly. Um, So after you do the abdomen, you're going to look at the upper extremities, make sure that you're not noticing any deformities, um, any lacerations, that they can move their upper extremities. Um, Same thing, kind of going down, you're going to look at the GU area. Uh, make sure that there's no blood at the meatus or in the vaginal vault. You're going to try to look at the perineum. Sometimes we do that in the primary survey, by the way. Um,
0: to look at the perineum? Yeah. When uh, you're rolling When the you're patient. rolling
1: them, you can lift their leg up and look under and kind of make sure the perineum's intact. Don't, okay. Yeah, you should not forget to do that. That's an important uh, component. Um, and then, you know, same thing with the lower extremities, kind of looking for any deformities, signs of injury, tenderness to palpation, et cetera. Um, and you're calling this all out along the way. Um, you're not necessarily doing anything about this stuff right now because the, hopefully these things are not life threatening, but you're setting yourself up for what imaging you're going to need to order, um, who you might need to be consulting, things like that.
0: Okay. So you're kind of taking stock of all the injuries and all of the things that you have going on with your patient, so that at the end of your secondary survey, you can address all of those things exactly. in order of importance. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Got it. I guess something that kind of happens along with your secondary survey is getting a better history from the caretaker. Yeah. So, How do you approach that in a trauma setting? Yeah.
1: So it's a good point. Often, when the patient is brought in, EMS is going to be able to give you some basic information. Um, but what's really helpful is if you can get more information from uh, somebody who is there or somebody who knows the patient. So you go through your sample history, which you might have heard of before. Um, it's just um, kind of going through. So S is uh, signs and symptoms. Um, what You know, is the patient complaining of anything? Is there, you know, anything obvious that you're noticing about the patient? Um, any allergies that the patient might have? Is the patient on any medications or have they received any medications? Past medical history? Uh, last meal, that's important in the in case the patient's going to go to the OR or you need to sedate them for a procedure and then events leading up to the presentation. So like what happened? Why are they here?
0: Mm-hmm. So these are just like the big ticket items in your history. You don't want to spend a whole lot of time talking to the caregiver and getting every last detail of everything that's ever happened to this child. Correct. But this is like the things that we need to know yep. to make good decisions yep. moving forward.
1: Yeah. And this is another really good thing that you can do as a learner. If you're not doing the primary secondary survey, this is a great role for you.
0: Right. I think if you're a fourth year medical student and you come back and you say the patient's last meal was at 9 a.m.,
1: that's big. that's
0: A plus work. Yeah.
1: People yeah. are going to be like, you're, all right, you're ahead of the game. Good yeah. thinking on that.
0: Totally. I think another great thing that's important to keep in mind is when you're touching on your past medical history, throwing in some questions based on your clinical suspicion for stressors, mental health. Um, Is this a patient who maybe has some suicidality going on Mm -hmm. that could have led to their being found down or um, history of substance abuse? Yep. Things like that. Yep.
1: And then another thing that we always have to think about, unfortunately, especially in some of the littler kids is, is this non-accidental trauma and that leads us down a whole different path.
0: Right. So using your knowledge on pediatric development um, and applying that to the story that you're getting from Mm -hmm. your caregiver Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, and making sure that it makes sense.
1: Yep. Exactly. Exactly.
0: So those are the, the main things that we would do in our secondary survey. Yep and in our, our sample history-taking. Yep. So once you've done your primary survey and your secondary survey, then what?
1: So then you're really putting into action the plan that you're developing or de- have developed. So um, based on your findings in the secondary survey, what uh, imaging do you need? Who do you need to consult? Uh, there are broken bones, are you gonna call orthopedics? Are you concerned about something in the brain are you gonna get a CT and then call neurosurgery? And then where's the patient going? Can the patient go home potentially? Or does this patient need to go to the PICU? If so, you're going to want to be calling the PICU, letting them know, um, talking to the surgeon sometimes. And often the surgeons are down there with you. Mm -hmm. Um, Following
0: up on your labs, following up on your radiology. Yep.
1: Yep. And then, you know, let's say, so if this is a sick patient needs to go in the hospital, that's one thing. This is a patient that you think can go home um, and, you you know, everything sort of comes back normal. um, You're going to want to... PO challenge the patient, number one, and then ambulate the patient, too. So if the patient is pretty well-appearing, normal labs, imaging is reassuring, and they do those two things, probably safe to send them home.
0: Okay. And are you... How how long do you watch them after you PO challenge them? PO challenge, by the way, is you give the patient like a juice. Yeah. Or you give them something by mouth, PO, and then you watch them.
1: Yeah. You know... (sighs) I don't know if I have a good answer for that question. If, it, if, the, if it's a kid who looks pretty good and they, they're eating the popsicle and they're like ready to go, you can probably send them after it's done. Yeah. If it's a patient you're a little more concerned about, you're not quite sure, you're going to watch them a little bit. You're going to make sure that they tolerate it. So I would say at least uh, 20, 30 minutes.
0: Mm-hmm. One thing that's kind of important to know that, that may not be immediately obvious is that our pediatric traumas are not all people who got into motor vehicle accidents or, you know, what we classically think of in our, you know, sort of in the, in the movie sense of the word mm-hmm, trauma. Mm-hmm. It could be someone who was found down. Yep. It could be someone who has altered mental status at home and then has brought an in injury. by a caregiver. Yep. Um, fell and hit their head. Yep. So some of these kids end up looking fine, but they were a trauma patient. Yep. Um, whereas others, you know, are, the, are what you would think of, which is like a motor vehicle accident or something yeah.
1: like that. And we, if you, if you can think about it. We've seen it. Yeah, (laughs) it's it's quite remarkable. Uh, We see a very wide range of stuff, um, including unfortunately stabbings, gunshot wounds. See a lot of ATV accidents, car accidents, golf cart accidents, golf cart accidents, kids falling off of all sorts of stuff,
0: lethargic infants,
1: lethargic infants, um, uh, kids jumping off of trampolines, like really anything you can think of, it's happened.
0: Yeah. So for example, if you had a kid who jumped off a trampoline, came in, primary survey, secondary survey, labs, films, all that stuff, you can imagine how that kid could go home even though they were a trauma patient. Yeah.
1: yeah. And I think it's important to note to note that some of these kind of lower acuity trauma patients, they might not need all, they might not need labs at all. Right. They might not need any, any imaging. Certainly on the more acute patients, you're going to get all that stuff. But um it's not, a, it's not a trigger for all the patients. You know, it really depends on the particular presentation of the patient.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Nice. Well, I think um, this is definitely super helpful. And I think that a lot of residents can use this when they're going into the pediatric ER setting to kind of establish their role and then really get kind of on the front lines of the trauma and learn something.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's a really great opportunity to kind of get your hands dirty because in the ED, we always um, need extra help and are appreciative of it. Um, And it's a great way to to get experience.
0: Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you so much for joining us this week.
1: Yeah, it's great.
0: I think this is a great episode and we hope to have you back.
1: Sounds good. See you soon.
0: All right. Thanks. Thanks for listening to MD Notified, a pediatric podcast. References to the information sourced in this episode can be found in the Quick Notes outline, which is available on mdnotified.com. The contributors to MD Notified have no financial disclosures or conflicts of interest. The views, information, or opinions expressed are solely those of the individuals in today's episode and do not represent any other organizations or its employees. The primary purpose of this podcast is to inform and educate. This podcast does not constitute medical or professional advice or services. If you are a member of the general public and have questions, please make an appointment with your local board-certified pediatrician.